Go beyond the headlines and deepen your understanding of the forces shaping our world today on The Political Scene, a newly updated podcast from The New Yorker. With episodes three times each week, The Political Scene accesses the sharpest minds on politics, offering insight and analysis about everything from abortion rights to the war in Ukraine. Join me, Tyler Foggett, for conversations with the most knowledgeable minds from The New Yorker that will dive deep on the most interesting political story of the week. Then, Susan Glasser, Jane Mayer, and Evan Osnos gather to hash out what's happening in Washington, D.C., with an insider's understanding of the high stakes at this perilous moment for American democracy. Plus, our editor David Remnick will provide you with insightful storytelling with a mix of interviews and profiles. That's all happening on the political scene. Make sure you're following it now, wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Jason Kander, and this is the first episode of Majority 54, a podcast that helps the 54% of us who didn't vote for Trump talk to those who did about the most divisive issues in our country. Each episode of this show tackles a single issue by getting to know an actual human being who's living it every day. For episode one, I wanted to go straight at one of the most difficult conversations in America right now, racial inequality. So I went to Ferguson to talk to one of the most intriguing people I know, my friend Bruce Franks. Bruce is a small businessman who became a central figure in Ferguson after Michael Brown was killed. What he is more than anything is an activist. And in the wake of Michael Brown's death, Bruce was in the streets. He marched, he demonstrated, he still does both, but he also did something else. He started an organization, 28 to Life, to build trust between the police and the community. Then last year, Bruce decided St. Louis needed an activist in the state legislature. So he ran for and won a seat in the Missouri House, making him the only member of the Missouri legislature whose rap videos have been viewed over a million times on YouTube. Bruce and I had breakfast in Ferguson at a place called Kathy's Kitchen. You'll hear my friend Kathy Jenkins and her husband Jerome cooking in the background a bit during this conversation, in which Bruce said some pretty provocative stuff. You don't have to keep researching us. Uh, we know what the issues are. America was founded on violence. I don't care how high of a degree you have, it doesn't trump my lived experience. Everything from the importance of making people uncomfortable to his take on American history. you also find out that I am apparently a battle rapper. I know, it was a surprise to me too. So I'm going to play a short clip of Bruce addressing members of law enforcement during a recent protest and then launch right into our conversation about racial inequality. Okay, here's Bruce. I was an activist, he still am. Before I was an activist, I was a black man. We can't be so pro-police to the point where we forget about accountability. When you don't truly understand the challenges and barriers of black folks and what we go through, that's an issue. You have your rules of engagement, we have ours. There's a difference between being peaceful and being nonviolent. But just to let you know, there will not be any peace. Because one thing that has to be understood, and that will be understood, is y'all gonna stop killing us. So Bruce, the first time that I ever even heard of you was when another politician said to me, yeah, there's this guy, Bruce Franks, and I think he has tattoos on his face. And I'm pretty sure he's done time. <laughs> well, um, I've never done time. <laughs> but it's, um, I don't know. I think what I've learned, what I've come to learn is that, um, you know, you got you to gotta make people accept you for who you are. Um, I come from the south side of St. Louis, 4,300 gifts in one of the roughest neighborhoods um, in St. Louis. And just a lot of the things that I've been through kind of helped shape me into what I am today and what I fight for today. Um, in 91, 1991, my brother was killed. Uh, he was used as a human shield. He was nine years old. Um, I was six years old. Um, going through gun violence and, you know, being 33 now and, and going through over 158 funerals now, um, you know, you become immune to what's going on in the community. Um, and so finally I had an opportunity to change that and, and push forward um, on an activism level first um, and then into politics. And I've used all of my life experiences um, to kind of paint that picture and push forward and not only empower, but to educate those who don't come from my community or who don't truly know what it's like to go through gun violence and some of the other things that I've been through. When you were growing up, what did you want to be? When I was growing up, I wanted to be a police officer. 
you know, my dad was a, a cop. And so when I was really young, I wanted to be a cop like my dad. Um, but we grew up in really different places. We're pretty close in age, so around the same time, but in really different places. So I'm curious, was that common in your neighborhood or were you the only one who felt that way? So I think that it was just me because where I come from, you know, there was an extreme, there's always been extreme mistrust when it comes to policing because the officers that are policing my community, uh, well, used to police my community back then, weren't officers that came from my community. They were officers that came from rural areas or West County or somewhere where they didn't see a lot of folks that that looked like me. They didn't see a lot of the challenges and barriers that we had. And it's so far-fetched to them for us to be going through the things or arguing or being told about some of the small things to them when really it's not small to us because it's all we got. You know, so not understanding that, look, when we make this 911 call, we're making this call. This is the worst time of our life right now. And we're calling you because something's wrong. And often what used to happen and what still happens is the people who make the phone calls usually end up getting treated like the suspect. Hmm. You know, usually get their name ran and find out now they got warrants and now they got to go to jail. And I'm the one that called the police, you know. So that's what stops folks from calling the police and having, you know, this mistrust. And so as a kid, it was like I had one particular officer who was like the coolest guy to me. Um, he bought me a globe hmm. and I never had a globe, you know, I ain't at school. And basically, he showed me where St. Louis was and showed me how big the world was outside of St. Louis. He said, well, it's easy for me to tell you that the world's big outside of St. Louis, but this is the way I show you. So always show and don't tell. Um, Hmm. And when I told him I wanted to be a police officer, he asked me, uh, my father was, my father's one of the greatest human beings I know. I love him to death. He hasn't always been on the up and up. He's had his rough times, especially when I was younger. And this officer asked me, he said, would you arrest your father? And I said, no, I'd rather help him. Hmm. So that kind of ended my my <laughs> career as a police officer. <laughs> <laughs> that, that's how you, how old were you when this conversation happened? I think I was, I had to be about nine, nine mm-hmm. or ten years old. Do you, you still know? rap? Mm-hmm. Yeah, mm-hmm. I just had a battle three weeks ago, two yeah? weeks ago. Yeah. I, I don't know how that, do you? Is the proper question, did you win? How does that work? I don't know. So, yeah, they, I mean, they had wins and lots. This was actually a really good battle. This would be considered a classic. It was a good mm-hmm. back and forth, good conversation. Um, and it was, you know, it was enlightening. You know, I'm, cool. a, I'm a different type of battle rapper than most. How, how so? Because I don't know any. You're the only one I know. <laughs> so, I, um, you know, you get in there, you talk about the usual stuff. Everybody talks about, you know, Guns, you make up this imaginary stuff that you're gonna do to each other when nobody's, you know, nobody's gonna throw rice at a wedding. But you know, when you're on stage, you know, you're gonna kill each other. Um, and so, you know, and it's it's good because it's kind of like boxing. You know, it's like lyrical boxing. You know, you don't buy into too much of what's saying, more of the metaphors and similes that's being used. Um, but me, I use it to educate. I talk about. Mike Brown. I talk about Sandra Bland. I talk about Tamir Rice. I talk about politics. I talk about where I came from and where I am now and how we can change and I empower. And like, if I have a stage and I got over 1.7 million views, if I'm going to have a million people watch me on stage, then I'm going to say something that needs to resonate with them, that that they need to take home that's going to make them think. So that's why I'm a little different than most battle rappers. I haven't been a podcast host long, but I think I'd be doing wrong by listeners if I didn't ask if you could if you could rap a little now. They say we can't talk about injustices on this stage, but it still go hand in hand. They told me that I needed seasoning. Well, I told them my flavor is that Sandra Bland. See, if they don't want to hear what I got to say, they can go to the back and pipe down. See, I'm black, but my skin tone is that distinct Mike Brown. See, they do it for a different reason. They just want to get seen. When I'm still pissed off that Tamir Rice ain't make it to 15. So I'm standing in the face of injustices every day with a hoodie on. No matter who gonna get me. Just to let them know that Trayvon sent me. See, in my life, I don't even know if I'm safe anymore with the title. I still don't know if I'm safe anymore. Because Oscar showed us that even when you play right, you still get the medal. That's a Tony Award. See, 
we fought for the right to vote and still we haven't won then. I'm the one that went from being pepper sprayed and tear gas to being sworn in. I remember need capital for an office. Now my office is in the capital. Best thing about grassroots is all natural. <laughs> so we gonna stand every day, even when they think we can't take it. I don't care about being a representative. I just want to be the kid from 4300 that said I made it. Let me tell you a love story. When I was 17 years old, I met this refugee girl from Russia who was brilliant and amazing and also very pretty. And uh, today she's a best-selling author. She's an entrepreneur. And the love story has met a crescendo because now I get to read ads with her because she's my wife, Diana. Say hello, babe. Hello, Majority 54. All right, babe, tell us about the very first generous sponsor that allows us to do this podcast. Let me tell you about ZipRecruiter. You know that finding good candidates for jobs is hard. And with ZipRecruiter, you can post your job to over 100 of the web's leading job boards with just one click. Just one. (laughs) Then ZipRecruiter puts its smart matching technology Probably robots. Actively notifying qualified candidates about your job within minutes of posting. So you receive the best possible matches. Using the most adorable robots. That's why ZipRecruiter is different. Unlike other hiring sites, ZipRecruiter doesn't depend on the right candidates finding you. It finds them. We're talking like R2-D2 level adorable. (laughs) No wonder 80% of employers who post on ZipRecruiter get quality candidates through the site in just one day. One. Just one. ZipRecruiter. It is the smartest way to hire. And probably a better way to cook. Find out today why ZipRecruiter has been used by growing businesses of all sizes and industries to find the most qualified job candidates with immediate results. And right now, listeners of Majority 54 can post on ZipRecruiter for free. See, I think when it's all caps, you're supposed to like, free. Keep going. You're doing great. That's right. Free. Yeah. yeah. Just go to ZipRecruiter.com slash 54. That's ZipRecruiter.com slash 54 to try it for free. So, Bruce, we're sitting here in Ferguson. This is the place where Black Lives Matter as a movement went from something that a few people knew about to something that the entire country knew about. And I remember being here a few days after Michael Brown was killed and sitting down with the chief of police, Chief Jackson, and saying to him that he should resign. He obviously disagreed. But I have my own views uh, as to what went wrong, and and it was a lot of stuff. But I know you do, too, and I want to hear from you. But I want to ask it this way. If you had been the chief of police in Ferguson at that time, what would you have done differently? If I I was a police chief in Ferguson, um, first thing I would have did was um, I would have got Michael Brown's body to where it needed to be. That was first and foremost. I know a lot of people that's been killed by the police, even before Michael Brown, but I never saw it. I always heard about it. You know, you wake up the next morning, you receive text or... Facebook messages or, you know, somebody saying rest in peace, but you never saw it. Somebody could have heard about the moment it happened, drove from Chicago doing 80 miles an hour down 55 and made it here in time to still see his body. Four and a half hours. That's a problem. Um, So that's the first thing I would have did. And I would have went more immediately to um, de-escalation and community engagement um, instead of having so many law enforcement, I would have a lot more resource providers because at the end of the day, we're talking about a community that's missing something. Because when I got out there, it was police dogs, police officers, trucks, command station down here. It was like they set up for a natural disaster. Hmm. You know, um, National Guards then come in and, you know, we get tear gas shot at us and tear gas canisters we, you know, they were shooting them at us, and at first we thought we thought they was hot. We were jumping out the way, moving until it hit one of us, and we like, oh, no, these ain't that hot. So because there were kids, there were women. You're saying that, that's when people started picking them up and throwing them back. Because where they were shooting, it was kids and women right here. Mm-hmm. And, 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 um, that's a part of the story Edward, people don't know. Yeah, Edward, the guy that they, you know, the guy that they tried to prosecute who, who uh, passed away. Um, it was literally kids 
and women right there. And while he had his bag of chips still in his hand, like, he had the notion to run over there and start throwing them back to get them away from them. Mm-hmm. You hmm. know? And, and you, But nobody hears that part mm-hmm. of the story. They just see this kid with American flag shirt on thinking, oh, this is an iconic picture. No, he's trying to save people right now because they're not paying attention to what they're doing. They're shooting tear gas canisters because they're ready to go home because they've been out here too long because they want to enforce a curfew that we're not going to go by, mm-hmm. you know? And so I think that as a chief, I wouldn't went right into, um, right into de-escalation and community engagement rather than enforcement. Mm-hmm. Um, but the first thing you do is get that young man's body to where it needs to be. Show respect. You have to show respect. Mm-hmm. We don't know what happened then. You know, the, nobody knew what happened right then and there. You only had one person's word for it and everybody else who saw it from their different scopes. Mm-hmm. So nobody knew truly what happened. So to treat this young man, you know, the way that they treated him after him passing... You know, and for his parents, his parents and brothers and sisters, you know, his parents and sisters and, you know, for the community to see that um, it wasn't okay. Why do you think that the term Black Lives Matter has become so charged in our culture with people having such strong opinions on it? And also, what does it mean to you personally? What does it mean to you and your family? So for me... um, and I'll say I'll say this. So people often say that, and it's not their fault. It's just like it's not your fault. People often say that you're a Black Lives Matter activist. And when I hear Black Lives Matter activists, I think about the Black Lives Matter movement. Um, I'm not part of that movement. Black Lives Matter in September 22nd, 1984, when I was born. Before it was a hashtag. Before it was a movement. Um, when I say Black Lives Matter, it means that we have to be specific because it's not saying that all lives don't matter. We know all lives matter. Um, but until we're shown that our life matters in all of these different cases, until we're shown in our own community with people that look like us that our lives matter, we have to be specific. We have to be intentional and we have to be unapologetic. Um, and so when I when I say Black Lives Matter, I love going into a room full of white folks and saying, y'all believe Black Lives Matter, right? They're like, yeah. <laughs> I say, but what are you doing to portray that? Right. What are you doing in your own world to to make sure and preserve black lives? We got teachers, we got lawyers, we got politicians, we got all these different professions, but what actually are we doing? So I like... I like saying it as a mode of action to push people to to actually do something. Then I like going into the rooms like when I said it on the House floor, mm-hmm. you know, and the Republicans, they squirmed in their seat. Um, but I told them, if you if your rebuttal to Black Lives Matter is all lives matter, then you're not pro-life. Hmm. You know, because this is a pro-life issue. Black men being killed in the middle of the street is a pro-life issue. You know, black women being routinely stopped for a traffic offense and ending up dead in jail, that's a pro-life issue. You know, where are the, where are the, what's the prerequisites? Is there a cutoff when we talk about pro-life? So I like using it to, to push forth action. I like using it um, as a mode to, to kind of spark some, some real conversation. Um, what it means more to me to, than just a phrase or a hashtag is, is, what I encompass and what I live every day. So when you think about the Republicans in the, in the General Assembly that react that way, do you feel like, because we talked a few minutes ago about you feel like it's difficult, for instance, for police officers who they wake up in a totally different part of town and then they come and they, and they work uh, in your part of town. And it sounds very much to me like you, you're very clearly saying, like, I understand their perspective. I understand why that's uh, not an easy transition for them. Uh, do you feel like you can see that with, you know, a Republican rural legislator from Clinton, Missouri or something? Absolutely. The reason I feel like the reason why um, I get respect in the House is because I give respect in the House. Um, I understand that Representative Warren Love hmm. didn't grow up around people that look like me. It didn't grow up in the community that I grew up in. 
Um, and I think through conversation, I was able to change some perceptions. Because um, when I walked in the house, oh, man, I didn't, I didn't get the love that I get now. You know, tattoos on my face, outspoken, Ferguson activist, and it, it's nothing but police officers on the other side and pro-police. So, But when I opened my mouth to talk about, you know, how we need to bridge gaps and how where I come from is my story, where you come from is your story. Um, but it's time for us to kind of share those stories so I can understand, so I don't have to judge you because you're from a rural area and you're a Republican. You don't have to judge me because I'm a Ferguson activist with tattoos on my face from the south side of St. Louis. Um, so I opened up those conversations. I even had an event at the house in the rotunda called Often Judged But Never Read. And I invited the Republicans. And I, I talked for about an hour and 15 minutes about where I'm from, what I've been through, uh, my perception of what went on in Ferguson, being someone that was on the front lines. Um, and then I ended with um, with one of my kind of rap spoken word pieces. Mm-hmm. And I remember Warren Love coming up to me, you know, kind of teary-eyed but trying to be tough. Um, Justin Hill, you know, um, some, of these, some of these Republicans who are super pro-police, super conservative, like sat there the whole time and listened. Um, and ironically, these were some of the ones I was able to work with to get a couple of amendments passed, work with Justin Alferman to get $6 million for summer jobs and all these different things. So it's about, I mean, we're going we're gonna to fundamentally disagree. That's fine. That's okay. Um, but the things we can agree on and, and when we can bridge gaps, that's what we should be doing. Have you brought any of them here? So actually, it's funny you said that I'm inviting all of the Republicans to the district uh, for two days, Saturday and Sunday. Um, I got a day of events set out where they're going to go through my district. It's not going to be like the freshman bus tour. We just go <laughs> get to see Bush Stadium and no, we're going to the hood. Mm-hmm. I'm going to show you where these police involved shootings were. I'm going to show you where you know, a lot of my friends and cousins died. I'm going to take you to the programs that actually work, but we can't get the funding to expand it um, so that we can really get the metrics and a measurable outcome. You know, I'm going to take you down here where our homeless population is. I'm going to let you talk to some of our ex-offenders. And No, you get to hear it from the horse's mouth instead of watching Fox 2 or any other of these stations that, that paint this in a certain way and you don't truly understand the root causes of these problems. So we've had... Um, We've already had um, over 20 Republicans confirm. Um, when I just put wow. the notion out on Twitter, like I had them, they was, they was retweeting, yeah, I'll come, I'll come, I'll come. And so um, now we got, you know, we got some confirmed and we're going to get them down here because that's what it's about. One of the eye-opening experiences I had was our freshman bus tour. I'm from the hood. Like, I've never been to some of these rural areas. I didn't know some of these rural areas exist. Pemiscott County? I didn't know what Pemiscott County was. When I went down there, I saw disenfranchisement. I saw poor folks. I saw unemployment. I saw drug addiction. I saw the same things that I see in my community. And it opened my eyes that, like, damn, we're not the only people that go through this. You know, the city of St. Louis and the city of Kansas City, like, these folks that we label the inner city, we're not the only ones that go through these problems. So that opened my eyes to really start having conversation with rural area Republicans and say, hey, you know, what's going on in your community? How can I help? You mentioned 28 to Life. 28 to Life came about after Michael Brown was killed, yes. right? Tell me about what it is and how you started it and that kind of thing. So 28 to Life is an organization um, that I started um, to basically combat gun violence from the root cause. There was a study done at the time that said every 28 hours a person of color is killed um, by law enforcement. And so I figured if we had 28 hours to fix what was going on in our community and how to keep black folks alive, um, how would we do it? So I broke it down into three sections, um, police community relationship, youth empowerment, and economic growth through small businesses. Um, and those are three things that even to today, um, you know, we, we push heavily on. How did you know to pick those three? Because I come from this community. Um, and, you know, we often do research and we say, oh, you know, let's call all these, you know, let's spend millions of dollars on research. Like, you don't have to keep researching us. Mm-hmm. Uh, we know what the issues are. Um, I come from this community, so I know that the police are going to be here, we're going to be here. Um, so, you know, 
laws of probability say someday we're going to have to get together in order to survive, both of us. Mm-hmm. Um, so how can we get together? How can we hold officers accountable, but how can we work on police community relationship at the same time? Um, when it comes to youth empowerment, our youth, you know, the youth are always our future. You know, that's what all of this is about. That's what life is about, our youth, you know, and setting them up to be successful in the future. So if we're not doing that, um, then we're not setting up our future. Um, and when it comes to economic growth through small businesses, our small businesses have, have always been the heartbeat of the communities. You know, big companies and corporations come and go. Um, but mom and pop stores and corner stores and, you know, restaurants, they're here for 10, 20, 30, 40, 50 years. Those are the ones that give you your first job. They teach you job readiness. They teach you about financial literacy, all these things. So how about we empower the small businesses in our community? Um, and, and then we can, you know, we can truly talk about a prosperous community. I've sat here in Kathy's with Kathy and Jerome before and had them explain to me how it's not just about this place, but it's also about there aren't black-owned uh, gas stations here in town. There's not black-owned grocery stores, and that's, mm-hmm. that's their vision. And so I think that's why what you were saying about small business versus you know, big corporations come and go. The big corporations come in, they're owned by folks who are not from here. Absolutely. Small businesses are owned by folks who are here, which really does make all the difference. Yeah, right? absolutely. It's When my wife and I started um, our businesses, we took them right to the community in which we come from. We're both from the south side. Uh, we have an insurance company. Mm-hmm. It's important that folks know how important it is to have insurance. Um, so we bought insurance, you know, to our neighborhood, but we bought affordable insurance and we bought um, financial literacy and financial empowerment um, through the insurance company. We own a tax office that's in our community. And what we do is we take the money that they get and we teach them how to do something else with it, how to do something different, how to invest it, how to even just start a bank account with this. Because, you know, in our community, um, you know, in, in a black community, and economically distressed communities, it's underbanked and underserved. Um, and so we teach those things and, and we empower those things. So by taking your small businesses and truly giving back to the community and educating and empowering the community, like that's what it's about. Like our big corporations, um, you know, they're not going to do that in so many cases. The holidays are always the busiest time of year, and the thing I dread the most is going to the post office. Because of that time you threw up at the post office. (laughs) Look, I had some bad potato salad. I wasn't sure if I should eat it. And it it was the holidays. There was a line 50 people long, and they don't let you use the bathroom at the post office. And, I I mean, it, it was a terrible ordeal. I ended up throwing up at the post office. She still talks about it all the time. Because they wouldn't let me use the bathroom. It is a hilarious story. So the answer to this... Is stamps.com. It brings all the services of the U.S. Post Office to your fingertips. You buy and print official U.S. postage for any letter, any package, and any class of mail using your own computer and printer. And then the mailman picks it up. Stamps.com makes it easy. They give you a digital scale. You can automatically calculate everything. I use stamps.com because don't. Don't right now. Okay, (laughs) go. Because it's so easy. And And because the bathroom is always available at the house. And right now, you too can enjoy the Stamps.com service with a special offer that includes a four-week trial plus postage and a digital scale without any long-term commitments. Avoid the craziness of the holidays at the post office, trust me, and go to Stamps.com. Just click on the little microphone at the top of the homepage and type in 5-4. And if that potato salad has been sitting out for a long time, just throw it away. Don't eat it. Seriously. That's stamps.com and her 5-4. Stamps.com. Never go to the post office again. We have a four-year-old son who is amazing and joyful and fun. He's also kind of stressful. And we have a president who acts like a four-year-old, and that can be kind of stressful, too. Yeah, so we all know the benefits of massage to relieve the physical manifestation of all of this stress. But it takes so much time. Like, you have to drive to the place, and then after you get the massage, your hair's all messed up for the rest of the day. My dad would say that this is a high-class problem, but still a problem. <laughs> so Soothe is an on-demand massage service that delivers a hand-selected, licensed, and experienced massage therapist to you in the comfort of your own home, hotel, or office in as little as an hour. You skipped the part about couples massage. (laughs) I want to get a couples massage. Okay, so my favorite part is that the therapist can earn over three and a half times what they would make at a spa. You want your therapist making as much money as possible because you're going to get the best ones. And you can even book a massage for 10 o'clock on a Wednesday. That's crazy. So... 
Book a massage as soon as today. You can use your iPhone or Android app, and our listeners are getting a special offer that's going to get you $20 off your first massage when you use code 54. So download the Soothe app, S-O-O-T-H-E, in iOS or Google Play, and be sure to use our code 54 to get $20 off your first massage. Soothe, spa-quality massage anytime, anywhere. This took like 20 takes because Diana censored every one of my massage jokes. <laughs> it's always interesting to me how, like after Michael Brown was killed, people were really hesitant to come here to Ferguson. And a lot of it was you'd ask them what their hesitation was about. And I think, and I don't know, but I think most of them would have said, well, I don't, I don't really have the answers. Well, what always struck me about that attitude is how are you going to get the answers if you don't go to a place and ask a bunch of questions? And, and so that, like, that's the approach I've always taken. I mean, obviously you and I grew up real different. I spent a ton of time here in Ferguson because I needed to in order to understand. And I've also spent a ton of time in places like Pemiscott County because I didn't grow up in a place that's anything like that either. And I, and I feel like you hit the nail on the head. It's that you can't. Like, the people who you meet in politics who always seem to know what's going on but never ask you a question are the people who are usually making everything up. Absolutely. Because <laughs> how, the, how the hell did they learn it? Yeah. <laughs> no, they... that's true. I had to hear about a lot of the amount of stories I had to hear about what happened in Ferguson when I got tear gas and pepper spray right there. Right outside and, the window here? Yeah, right outside the window, mm-hmm. right down the street, right around the corner on West Florissant. Um, to actually hear folks tell me what happened, to hear Republicans tell me what happened. We may no longer be in the area. It is no longer a peaceful protest. One of the highlights of me being in the legislature was being able to kill um, Nick Marshall's highway protesting bill in committee. Well, that was the one that said you're not allowed to do it or you're allowed to hit it, people or something? I don't know. That, that's the one that says that you'll receive a felony if you protest on the highway. Oh, okay. Um, we, already have, we already have criminal infractions for impeding traffic. That's fine enough. Um, but you're not going to tell me when, and when, and when I can and can't use my First Amendment right, whether you agree with it or not. Um, and so I asked him, I said, you know, he's like, oh, we've seen what happened. We've seen what I said, you saw from the, did this happen in your particular county? Have you ever been to a protest? I said, well, I just learned a new word. I just learned what retroactive means in, in the legal sense. So unless you're going to make this bill retroactive and go back and charge Martin Luther King and everybody else in Selma with a felony for marching on the highway, then this ain't going to happen. We're going to march on highways. We're going to shut traffic down. We, we're going to do all the things that's going to make you uncomfortable. That's the point of a protest. Tell me more about that. Why do you think it's important to make people uncomfortable? Because you can't go back to business as usual when we have these injustices um, and when we have these different things happening. Um, it's important to make people uncomfortable because when people are uncomfortable, then they want change because they don't want to be uncomfortable. So they're going to do what they need to do to make sure that they're comfortable. Um, is that right, wrong, and different? Whatever. But is, is, so is, is what you're saying that basically folks are driving down whatever highway it is. Folks are driving down that highway every day. They're basically driving past the events on the ground, the, which are the events in your life and your neighbor's lives and that kind of thing. And they're not stopping to think about those events until those events come to their highway. Until it's at your front door. Think about all the times that people may, and, and I don't, I don't want to speculate, but I know it happens because I've done it. But think about the times that we've seen something on the news and we've seen it for two seconds or three seconds and we say, oh, that's messed up and just go about our regular day. Pretty not much every give, time you watch the news. Yeah, not giving any thought to, oh, well, that family or, you know, what really happened or just taking, for, you know, just taking it for what it's for. Um, and then you just go about your day until you get on a highway and you're going down 70 and you going through St. Charles, a place you don't really expect the protest to be, and you're wondering why it's backup traffic during rush hour. And St. Charles, for the folks listening, is the, is the county outside of St. Louis County where basically white folks have moved. It, white flight has now gone from West St. Louis County all the way into St. Charles County. Basically, Absolutely. these are folks who uh, they don't deal with this on a daily yeah. basis at Absolutely. all. Absolutely. And Trump did great. 
in St. Charles. <laughs> I did not. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but like when you when you run into these different things, when you when you have to walk outside your house and and you see a thousand people walking down the street and you probably can't pull out right now. And the thing about one thing that that kind of makes me mad is people often say, "Well, what about the ambulance? Or what about what if there's a pregnant mother? Or what if we move?" You ever seen Moses part the Red Sea? Like, that's what we do for emergencies. Like, so folks will be able to get through. Mm-hmm. Um, but at the end of the day, like, you have to make, you have to be heard. And you have to go to the biggest stages and the biggest platforms to get your message out. And I don't care if that's the Cardinals game. I don't care if that's the highway. I don't care if that's City Hall. Um, I don't care if it's it, wherever it is. Washington, D.C., that's what we need to do. So I have a few really, really conservative friends, Trump voters, uh, who I sort of asked him before I talked to you, like, okay, what are some of the stuff that you would want to ask? Because, frankly, it might not be the kind of thing I would think of. So what they would ask about something like this is, don't you think you're losing people by just basically pissing people off with this? Oh, no. I mean, because, for one, we never had them in the first place. (laughs) So... By by educating them about what's going on, by showing how upset we are, people people, I think people underestimate passion. Um, as a persuasion tactic, yeah, as say. a persuasion mm-hmm. tactic. Um, but just really encompassing passion, right? Because I can't tell you how and when. What you did on my inauguration day was the greatest thing ever, right? Mm-hmm. When you got up there, you said what you had to say. That's nice. been me all year. And but people listen. You're talking about when I the speech about voting rights. Yeah, when you when you yeah, when you went off. Thanks. I appreciate it. That was a battle route. Voters across the country and in our state decided in November to turn things over a bit and to decide that my Republican friends would have the opportunity for two to most likely four years to shape this state and to shape this nation as they see fit. And so I am here today as a Missouri voter to ask you simply not to overstep when it comes to voting rights. American heroes face down batons and dogs and fire hoses to march across a bridge in Selma. Americans of every color have given their lives for the simple idea that we all count and that all of us get to vote. Now, you may not think that that's important, and if you don't, you should at least know this, that in my four years as the Secretary of State of Missouri, there's never been a reported case of voter impersonation fraud. And in my predecessor's eight years, There was never a case. And in her predecessor's four years, there was never a case. I could keep going, but I will give you the short version. And the short version is this, that there has never been a case of voter impersonation fraud in the history of the state of Missouri, ever. But I am your Secretary of State for a little bit longer. And as a result, I feel a responsibility to tell you that even though you have the power to take away the right to vote from the citizens of Missouri, that you shouldn't. And that if you choose to follow the example of Wisconsin or North Carolina, well, then I guess we'll see you in court. So you, <laughs> okay, so I, know, so I know two battle rappers. Yeah, now you know You two. and me, apparently. Absolutely, but we will never battle. Because <laughs> <laughs> you will. I'm pretty sure I would lose. <laughs> so, in fact, I'm pretty sure. I don't know if this is a requirement, but I don't think anything in that speech rhymed. Oh, yeah. I never rhyme. Oh, okay. I, good. I often don't rhyme. All right. Well, then. Rhyming then, is overrated. All right. Well, that's a relief. I think that. <laughs> but I think that what you said in that particular instance, I had Republicans come to me. I won't put them out there, but some of the Republicans came up to us and were like, yep. Hmm. Yeah. And it was. They're you know, anonymous. They kind of, a couple of them come to me, too. But Yeah. Yeah. And But that's what, that's what passion does. That was passion up there. That wasn't a. Right. Oh, let me write this speech for optics or that was you know what this is how I feel and I'm gonna call y'all out you know and so that's what we do that's that's basically what we're doing we're taking to the streets we're, we're getting heard we get and a lot of the, everything that went on in Ferguson I didn't necessarily agree with you know it was a lot of us that were in front of certain businesses trying to save businesses it was a lot of us physically removing agitators out of the crowd it was we were doing that but at the end of the day martin luther king said writing is the language of the unheard like you haven't been listening to this community you haven't been listening to these people um throughout the city of st louis and this was the boiling point um and so we you, you have to make people uncomfortable and if you're not with us from the beginning and we, we try to educate. This is our way of educating. This is our way of empowering. 
Um, and if you don't get it after that, then it's probably meant for you to be uncomfortable for a while. What do you think about the folks who say that you know, they, they're always trying to equate? And I know you were saying you're not part of the Black Lives Matter movement, but obviously you're you're very close to it. Mm-hmm. And and not to not to take away from anything that the Black Lives Matter movement has done. You know, they they've done a great job at you know within their Pacific. I, I took that as you saying you don't want to take credit for that. Word. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah, it's not that exactly. you. It's not that you don't believe in it or anything. Yeah, because a lot of people take credit for a right. lot of things and know nothing about. Right. You know, which is I think why you describe yourself as a Ferguson activist, not a Black Lives mm-hmm. Matter activist, because a lot of people are doing that work, but you're doing other work. Absolutely. But knowing the movement really well and really being there at the genesis of it, what do you say to the folks who say the rioting, the violence that happened? Who put that on the movement? I mean, it, of the, the Black Lives Matter activists that I know, they are people who are much more in Martin Luther King's tradition. It's about nonviolence. But I, I'm well, curious what you think about well, that. So, America was founded on violence. Every single major event, you think about Native Americans being here. You didn't just come over here and ask for their land. You didn't peacefully protest. You didn't um, block off roadways. You know, you came and you came and took. When slaves, when they bought slaves over here, they didn't have these big, beautiful chartered ships. It wasn't room for everybody. It wasn't fifty of the Titanics coming from Africa over here. We were bunched up on ships and folks died. And so we talk about violence over time that's happened. Um, and now we look at this and instead of us saying, you know, what's the root cause of this? Or why do people feel this way? Or, you know, what's really going on? We say, hey, you know, that's uncalled for. It's hard. It's easy to say what's uncalled for when you've never been through this. It's easy to say what what shouldn't have happened when you don't know what's going on. Um, and that takes me back to research. People often say, well, let's get the best practices and let's go research and let's go. And it's usually a room full of white folks. Mm-hmm. And then you have a room full of black folks over here who are the researched, <laughs> who are the folks who have been used as best practices and picked on and and used as guinea pigs for all these different studies. But we keep putting millions of dollars into research, but not millions of dollars into what the root cause of this problem is. You're basically saying, listen to the people who are on the ground. Listen to the people who are on the I, I, I have so much love for some of these folks who I have met that, you know, have this great education and have researched from WashU and SLU and all these different... I have the utmost respect for them. But we know what the issues are. And I don't care how high of a degree you have, it doesn't trump my lived experience. I can tell you about this better than anybody that's went to school for 40 years about it because I've lived it. Big thanks to Bruce Franks. Now, this next part of the show is where I'm going to run through some of the most common Republican arguments about the issue at hand, in this case, racial inequality. And then I'm going to tell you how I tend to respond to them. I'm going to draw on my conversation with Bruce. My hope is that you're going to be better equipped to make your argument the next time you're in one of these conversations. So, Let's start with the first common Republican talking point. What the hell are these people thinking? Isn't the president supposed to believe all American lives matter? Hi, everyone. I'm Eric Bong. Welcome to Cashin' In. All individuals matter. We're a country of individuals. You know, not not racial tribes. And just the left is so obsessed with collectivism. Only groups matter to them. You know, racial groups, gender groups, economic groups. And I'm sorry, but to treat all people as a member uh, of a particular tribe just because they happen to be the same race is racist in my book. So this argument is just saying that if you think black lives matter, you don't think all lives matter. But black lives matter means black lives matter also. That's why Bruce said, look, we know all lives matter. You can believe that all people are important and believe that one group in particular deserves to be highlighted in order to change something that you think is unfair. Imagine that you are volunteering at a breast cancer awareness event. You're working the registration table. And somebody walks up to you and they say, I came from next door at the testicular cancer awareness event. Why aren't you against testicular cancer? And you say, I am against testicular cancer, but uh, my mom is a breast cancer survivor. So I just feel kind of drawn to this. And they say, I can't support somebody who is for testicular cancer. And they walk away. That's what this argument is. The other version of this 
is to say, well, blue lives matter, which is pretty much just saying that the Black Lives Matter movement is anti-cop. But the Black Lives Matter movement's not anti-police. It's in favor of having a better relationship with the police. Everybody wants the police in their community. We all need them there in order for our community to be safe. You know, you heard Bruce talk about when folks call the police, it's because they need them to come in. They're having one of the worst days of their lives. That happens in every community. You want the police there. And that's why Bruce pointed out that the ideal is that the police come from the community. But even when they don't, you want to at least take steps to take the tension out of the relationship. So that's why people talk about community policing. The idea that an officer is in a neighborhood so often and knows the people so well that when they stop somebody, they know that person by their first name. Or they can ask them, well, who are your parents? They may know them. Or or they have some other person they know in common. All of that takes the tension out of the relationship. So the Black Lives Matter movement is about trying to have a better relationship with law enforcement. All right, let's do the next one. There's too much violence in the black community. So a black will die 1% or less at the hands of the police and 99% at the hands of a civilian, most often another black. So if you want to protect black lives, then you got to protect black lives, not just against police, which happens rarely, although with tremendous attention, and which happens every 14 hours in Chicago, every 14 hours. And we never hear from Black Lives Matter. So when I hear this argument, my first instinct is to rattle off a bunch of statistics about police shootings or about white on white crime in order to demonstrate just how absurd the black on black crime argument really is. But that's not really enough. I I feel like the important thing here is to recognize that this is a really common tactic. This thing where somebody says, we can't talk about that issue that you raised because this other issue exists. It's a bit of a cop-out. But it's important that you don't let somebody divert you to the other issue. If they do this, what I do is, is I say, look, we're not talking about that right now. What they're doing is like saying, we can't deal with crime until we deal with unaccredited schools. And we can't deal with unaccredited schools until we solve health care. By blaming the victim, somebody makes sure that they don't have to deal with the raw and really difficult emotion of the situation. That's actually a pretty understandable human instinct. When I see a car crash on TV, I tell myself a little story, you know, if I see it on local news. I I tell myself a little story about how my family doesn't really drive that road. I don't really drive that road much. I give myself emotional distance from it. I don't do it on purpose. It just happens instinctually right away. So, This is also why somebody in a lot of these situations will say, well, you know, the victim had a record. You know, they'll they'll claim that they were a criminal and therefore it was somehow a justified situation. And when they do that, I try and maybe change the players, make it a little more relatable to them. So I'll say, okay, imagine that Tim the Toolman Taylor, the dad from Home Improvement, or, or Iron Man, are stopped by the police and they're unarmed. They're clearly unarmed. They've surrendered themselves. And they end up getting killed in the situation. Would you think that that is justified behavior by that police officer? I point out to them, if they say yes, that, well, you know, Tim Allen and Robert Downey Jr. both have criminal records. So I think it's important not to allow folks to distance themselves from the situation, but instead to to help them connect to it by making it more relatable for them. Okay, let's do the next one. So then why can't uh, people like you, other African-Americans who are concerned about uh, violence toward your community, why can't you do it in a peaceful way, as Dr. King um, promoted? And in NAACP, um, there's a lot of organizations that are in business to promote justice for African-Americans. And they're not fringe violent organizations that you see interrupt political rallies and do pretty much what they want to do. I don't think that does the cause any good acting unruly and and threatening police officers. The Black Lives Matter movement is not violent, and it doesn't condone violence. Bruce even talked about how he and others in Ferguson worked really hard to try and protect businesses and to keep people from becoming violent at all. But he's also really clear that there's a difference between being peaceful and being nonviolent. What O'Reilly's doing here, and what folks do when they make this argument, is they're conflating two things. They're saying disruption like interrupting a rally or blocking a road, they're saying that that's violent. And they're doing that in order to confuse nonviolence with something that in no way disrupts your life. Martin Luther King Jr. was nonviolent, but he had no problem with disrupting the peace in your life in order to get your attention. 
the bus boycott, the marches, the sit-ins, all that stuff was nonviolent. But those white communities, they surely did not consider them peaceful. I'm sure the business community in Alabama was pretty upset about all of it. But they could ignore the problem until they were made uncomfortable, like Bruce said. And, and by the way, I like to tell people, imagine how inconvenient all of this is for the folks who are marching, for the folks involved. And I ask people, I say, what would have to happen in your life to drive you to do this? Marching all night in a situation where the tension is high and you're, you're concerned for your safety, I ask people to put themselves in that situation. And I also remind folks that no protest starts out as popular. I mean, Martin Luther King Jr. had at one point, I think, a 22% approval rating during the civil rights movement. A, a protest that is promoting a popular point of view, that's not a protest. That's a political rally. So this whole thing, this, we're seeing this play out every day right now because it's the same thing they do with the NFL protests. They're, they're trying to make that about the flag. They're trying to make it an argument about patriotism because they're trying to say that if you choose to protest in that way, that, that you're somehow not patriotic. But we need to redirect that argument. We need to talk about the fact that protests, that caring about what happens in your country, caring about your neighbors and the people in your community, that is patriotic. So you can't divert the attention just because you don't want to address the issue at hand. We need to talk about the underlying reason that people are making this point. So when they say that patriotism is about making everyone stand and salute the flag, we need to respond that patriotism is about making this a country where everyone wants to. I want to give a great big thank you to Bruce Franks for taking the time to share his story. If you benefited from Bruce's perspective, take the time to show him some love on Twitter. His Twitter handle and a whole bunch of other good stuff can be found in the show notes. And I want to hear from you too. So tweet at me and let me know your number one takeaway from this episode. You know somebody who would benefit from listening to this conversation. So do me a favor and share it on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, text message, whatever. It only takes a second, but it's all a part of growing the majority. And if you haven't subscribed just yet, it'll take you two seconds, but you won't miss any of the valuable conversations we have over the next few months. This is Jason Kander. Thanks for listening to Majority 54. And remember, we all have a platform. Make sure to use yours today. Talk to you soon. Hi, listeners. It's Robbie with a question for you. What if instead of being on the brink of disaster, we're on the cusp of a better world? For that answer, I recommend listening to the What Could Go Right podcast. Each week, Progress Network founders Zachary Carabell and Executive Director Emma Varvalukas dive into the biggest news and most pressing topics of our time, from elections to climate change, and make the case for a brighter future with guests like Harvard professor Arthur C. Brooks and California State Senator Robert Hertzberg. Progress is on the way. Find out on What Could Go Right, available wherever you get your podcasts.